Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, I am very pleased to have Dr. Craig Pickett Jr. at the University of Tennessee as our guest. Craig, thanks for joining the podcast. Congratulations on completing the dissertation, your recognition from SACSA, and as I was preparing for this episode, I just saw your recognition as one of Knoxville's 40 under 40. Thank you so much. I truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me um, on today. I'm always thrilled to talk about um, not only my research, but then what we're doing and how it can really leave, hopefully, a lasting impact. So I just love what I do every single day and having the chance to share it with all of my phenomenal SACSA colleagues and friends from across the region. I'm truly excited. So once again, thank you so much for the opportunity. Absolutely. And I, I love a dissertation with very practical and timely implications. So we're there right on go. the mark with that in our conversation <laughs> today. Um, exactly. So before we get to your work and your career, I always like to sort of start with who are we as human beings? So if you're willing, what what would you like to share with listeners about who you are outside of the job, things you're yeah. reading, listening to, whatever you want to share? Absolutely. Um, well, I will say, Craig, um, outside of work, I'm highly, highly engaged in my community, always finding ways for us to not only preach about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but then finding ways for us to really um, promote that amongst our communities. And so you'll find me all the time throughout my free time, highly engaged within my city here in Knoxville. I'm a proud member um, of the Alpha Mu Lambda chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. And so we're doing a lot of engaging with our youth and voter activism and more to really once again empower um, our community. But I also serve on a couple of boards here in Knoxville, um, Girl Talk Incorporated, finding opportunities for us to impact the lives of about 500 um, elementary, middle, and high school girls that are navigating their academic, their personal, and their career ambitions. I serve on as advisory council member for the Knoxville Area Urban League, and once again, helping our high school National Achiever Society members as they're once again exploring ways to which they can succeed in the class and outside of the class. I'm highly engaged with my church and my community. Um, it's hard to see right now. I have books all over the place about DEI. Just got a couple more books about DEI and inclusion this morning on my desk. I'm, I'm an avid um, explorer about all things inclusion, really finding more ways for us to practice what we preach. Yeah. And so that's my goal, not just to do it here amongst the brick and mortar aspects of my institution, but then finding ways for us to truly leave um, that long-term impact for generations to come um, throughout our communities and beyond. So I think you'll find about me when Craig is not here, you'll typically find Craig scattered about the community um, once again, helping out others anywhere possible. And then when I get, and get some free time, enjoying it with my wife and my, my four-year-old um, and my little puppy at home. So I think that's pretty much me in terms of my personal life in a nutshell, or a nutshell, excuse me. Yeah. Well, let, so let's shift to the professional you. Sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of your career into and through higher education? Yeah. And along the way, if you want to highlight people who've been particularly influential because it is a small world it and is, listeners is. are going to hear names and be like, Oh, I know them too. So <laughs> tell us about your journey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am an army brat. And so grew up, um, my father was in the army. So we bounced around all over. Um, 
born in Panama, spent time in Virginia, Missouri, and Oklahoma, um, and finally landed in North Carolina um, for my middle and high school um, career. And so I ended up going to Davidson College, um, small private liberal arts school right outside of Charlotte. Um, loved my time there, loved my experience there. Um, it's so interesting to me working now with students in terms of student engagement, helping them find their way and their path, because I always laugh at my story, but I always utilize my story. Um, I was told students, I started off pre-med, uh, growing up, you know, I knew, I always tell students, today's Grey's Anatomy for me was ER. And so I watched ER. And so I just knew I was going to be a doctor. And so I was pre-med for all of one day. Um, <laughs> switched from, from pre-med to psychology. I thought I was going to be a counselor and a therapist. Found out that didn't work. Um, switched to um, economics um, because I figured I'd be a businessman and make some money, be a high-powered um, corporate leader. Found out I wasn't really good at math. Um, switched to art because I figured who can put Craig in a box, you know, and my, my faculty were like, we can put you in a box. This is not working for you. Find something else. Um, then I switched from that to uh, mm -hmm. political science um, and my love for politics. And I just knew I was going to go to law school. So that was my route. I was going to finish Davidson College and go to law school. Um, but in the midst of that, I ran into some amazing mentors, um, one being Dr. Sabrina Brown, um, who's now at the at the Washington University of St. Louis. But she was working there at the time in res life and coordinating DEI programs for me and for my colleagues when I was at Davidson. And so she was, um, and still is to this day, um, a phenomenal resource. And so engaging with her and the programs that she was doing to help underrepresented students succeed. I met another phenomenal mentor there, Dr. Um, Ernest Jeffries. Um, and he was serving as our assistant dean of students there at that time and also directing our DEI initiatives. And now he's vice president for engagement at Mary Baldwin university, but the two of them together were really amazing resources for me throughout my junior and senior year. And so I was like, so you all are great. Like, what do y'all, how do y'all do this? Like, what, what is it that you're all doing every single day? And they were like, you can have a career in this. And I was like, say what now? You can have a career working with college students? How? And so, like I said, they were really instrumental in terms of helping me understand what student affairs is and their journey. Um, I was able to thankfully land um, an internship through the NASP Enough program. Um, and so that was really instrumental, having a mentor in that program, doing a, a summer internship at the end of my junior year um, at Denison up in Ohio and learning about a DEI through their office. And so all these things really steered my path. And so um, as a career counselor, me, I always say I love learning about everyone's experiences because our winding paths can lead us to success. There's no one straight path that um, that leads to everything that we all have to follow. But um, like I said, from there, I graduated from Davidson College. Um, then I went on to get my master's in student affairs and higher education from Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And so I was up there for two years, had a great time in my program, met some phenomenal colleagues, and then launched my career in student affairs, higher education, working as initially a career counselor in North Carolina, um, working with undergraduate and graduate students, thousands of students find their path. Um, so I did that for a couple of years and transitioned here to Knoxville, Tennessee, um, serving as a coordinator for student life and diversity for the Herbert College of Agriculture. Um, did that for a while, really coordinating DEI programs helping our students of color find some pathways to success, creating initiatives and really finding ways for us to create um, a better sense of belonging um, amongst the ag campus here while I work for our ag students and once again across the institution. Um, while in that role, I 
was asked to serve as a chapter advisor for a student organization called Gamma Beta Phi. It's a national honor society. So I was like, yeah, I'll be a chapter advisor, you know, go students, you know, go service projects. I love to see scholars. Um, did that for a couple of years. And then um, an opening arrived to be um, their new national executive director. And at first I was like, mm -mm, I love student affairs. This is where I am. This is my calling. Um, and so, the organization had an initial, a failed search. And so they opened up again. And so I was encouraged to apply. And I was like, I mean, I guess I'll give it a shot. Who am I? Um, ended up getting the position. So going from a coordinator for student life and diversity um, on a campus to now serving as a national executive director for a nonprofit working for colleges across the country. It was a major adjustment, but giving me a chance to connect with college students literally across America. I spent my time traveling California to Texas to Florida to New York and Massachusetts and more and really seeing these amazing students from all walks of life striving to succeed. Um, so I did that for a couple of years and then came back in this role to the University of Tennessee as the Director for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the UT Ag Institute, which is not only the Herbert College of Ag where I was before, but now I also coordinate DEI programs for extension. So we have um, about 850, 900 extension employees in all 95 counties. I coordinate DEI efforts for that, coordinate DEI for our 4-H program. We have the largest 4-H program Tennessee does um, in the nation, almost 185,000 young people. So overseeing um, those aspects and then our ag research elements as well. We have 10 ag research centers. So uh, they keep me busy, keep me all over the place. But once again, we're all about um, for us, how do we leave a lasting impact, especially as a land-grant institution? How do we meet that land-grant mission of truly enhancing the lives of all 7 million inhabitants of Tennessee, whether it be through food insecurity or healthcare or family services or more? And we can't do that without recognizing that our population is as diverse as ever. And so how do we make sure that we're hitting those from all walks of life? And so this position has given me a chance to look at it from not just the student engagement piece, but just inclusive excellence and engagement in our community and what that looks like um, as a whole. And so I think for me, that's been uh, my, 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 I guess, winding path within uh, higher education and student affairs and love what I do. Thankful to be here at the University of Tennessee and finding ways to once again meet that land grant mission and ensure that every student succeeds. That is my ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. Well, and I love how your story exemplifies the transferability of the skills you get exactly. from this work. Yes. And if you want to step away for a minute and then come back, mm -hmm. those skills and talents don't go away. So. They don't, friend. That yeah. is that, and that is the, the truth. And that's why I love it, whether it's, you know, leadership or engagement, populations in the community, um, communications, programming, evaluation, and assessment. You are exactly right. Those skills can be applicable um, in any industry, any fashion. Beautiful. Are there any other, you talked about a couple of influential people early, early on as an undergrad. Are there other people that along the way, whether they're um, people who helped you get connected with SAXA or, mm -hmm. you know, mentors as you, you know, you've done the work thing and then the dissertation thing while working thing. Yes. What's your journey been like as far as that goes? Yes, friend. It has been a journey and I'm thankful for my support network. Um, there's nothing greater than that. So while Dr. Uh, Sabrina Brown and Dr. Ernest Jeffries, they were and they continue to be to this day, um, amazing colleagues and mentors, friends that really helped me see it, everything through. I also say as well to um, Tyvee Small. He is our vice chancellor for uh, diversity and engagement here at the University of Tennessee. He has been 
um, since I got here in 2013 at the University of Tennessee, an amazing um, mentor to help me through everything in terms of really understanding how we can really promote DEI, even how we can do it sometimes in a contentious environments. How do we make sure that we can still find ways to promote um, success? And so he has been um, a phenomenal resource. Of course, I have to shout out my wife, who's been, I would say, the most amazing rock and resource of all. And, you know, she's been there ever since we actually started dating when I first applied to grad school and was there the entire time since. Um, and so being that I just finished everything, we're like, this is a whole new life now that I'm not in school. Um, but I would say she has been an amazing rock. But I would say for anyone, um, having those mentors, um, those people that you can call or text and say, I don't understand, or this is what I'm going through. Um, I would say my dissertation chair, Dr. Dory McCoy, um, pushed me, um, challenged me, but I would say stretched me to my limits to make sure that I could truly grow in this experience. And so I'll talk about him later throughout this, this podcast because he has been truly, truly instrumental. Um, and I'm so grateful um, for his efforts and for his encouragement and for his job to make sure that I didn't just produce good, but that I produced excellence. And that was his thing, Craig, everything. We could just do good. We could even do great, but let's strive for excellence. And so that was his goal. And I'm so thankful that we we reached that, we aimed for that. And our goal was to continue within that same vein. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, okay, so let's talk about it a little bit. Um, as you you know, are thinking about doing your doctoral work and, mm -hmm. you know, some people think you got to walk in the door with your research question. That's not usually the way that it works for most right. people, but how did you decide that you, what, what your topic was going to be? Um, clearly mm -hmm. it aligns with the work that you do, but mm -hmm. in fact, why don't you, because I haven't done this yet, why don't you kind of introduce your dissertation yeah. and how'd you choose that topic as your area of focus? So um, I, my research study looked at the lived experiences of African-American male students um, at predominantly white institutions from um, an aspect of phenomenology and looking at it through the lens of critical race theory. So really understanding the lived experiences of Black males as they're navigating through their second year of college. Um, people ask her, that's an interesting topic, you know, and for me, um, I guess for me, it was interesting and it drew me in both from the personal and the professional. From that personal aspect, um, as you heard a few minutes ago about my crazy winding story throughout my sophomore year, trying to understand where am I going with this? Um, and so I always thought maybe I was the only one that went through that because you know people didn't really talk about second year experiences. We focus more so on first year programming and first year initiatives. And for many state institutions, you're funded via your first year stats and stuff, stuff like that. And so um, the conversation really didn't drive around second year experiences a whole lot. Um, and so I started doing more research into second year programming um, after my master's program, just to learn, learn more about who's doing second year initiatives. And so I learned about the um, efforts at the University of South Carolina, who I call the Mecca of second year programs and other institutions. And so started to see that a lot of um, researchers and uh, um, educators were doing a lot of um, studies on second year experiences and the sophomore slump. Um, the sophomore slump being that period of time during one second year where they are finding themselves disengaged from the college experience because they're trying to figure out how does life take me? I've been coddled, um, catered to throughout my first year. So I got to my first year and I said my major over here, my junior year, but I got to figure out how do I get from here to here. And so the stats show that one in four students go through this period of disengagement and isolation, this slump 
during their sophomore year. So I was like, this is interesting. And then I started realizing that none of the studies actually uh, disaggregated the data to see the black male experience. Usually it was just in general, students are experiencing this in general. And so I was finding in the research that many black males are dropping out during their sophomore year, but nobody was really examining why and how that correlates to the sophomore slump and more. And I was like, that's my niche right there. That's where I can not only contribute um, to the literature and the knowledge, but also how I can leave a lasting impact and really help hopefully advisors and faculty, professors, practitioners that are trying to find ways um, to engage and to support um, this targeted population um, where many of them seem to struggle um, on so many avenues, as I'll talk about later um, in the research. And so I think that really um, pushed me into it, not just my personal, but like I said, really seeing based upon the stats and higher education practices, a really large focus on first year, not as much emphasis on the second year. We want to get students to and through their major, but they got to get through the second year in this sophomore slump. So I think that really um, drove me uh, to and through my area of research. And so I guess I was one of the few um, that came in with a possible topic in mind, but I still had to change a lot. You know, I still had to edit a lot. So once again, we'll talk about that, but um, a lot of cutting, a lot of editing, but I think that's how I initially found my niche in terms of areas to study. That's great. As you um, went through the experience, um, there are lots of ups and downs. Yeah. So, you know, and, and you mentioned your wife earlier as, when you get a dissertation with a family, you mm -hmm. all learn that dissertation. So the word. <laughs> what, what was that part of it like? So the personal, yeah, just the, the, I guess, emotional, physical, yes, yes. mental experience of it. Mm -hmm. It is most certainly an adjustment. And I've heard people say, you know, all throughout my life, you know, obtaining a PhD, um, it's a journey. There's a reason why it is difficult, a reason why very few people will have it. Um, you have to push and be motivated um, and be consistent in that and be disciplined um, in that, but also knowing where you can find your energy um, and your support network. I think for me, several aspects. Number one, there was that adjustment to being back in school, you know, as a full-time practitioner, all of a sudden going back to school, even part-time, there's always that adjustment of being back in school. What is that like? Um, you know, in my writing back on track, you know, my comprehension and can I, you know, really understand what's happening, imposter syndrome. So you have all that in play, um, balancing yourself, that time between being an employee. Um, at that time, especially in my in my initial job, when I first started my doctoral program, I was sometimes working sometimes 15, 18 hours a day in terms of programming this for the, during the daytime and the evening, working with students, crisis, things may happen. And so I was trying to balance this demanding position um, my relationship. Um, we got married, being a, a husband, and we had a child within a year later or so, so our father, so all that. And so knowing how to really balance that time, what that looks like to make sure that I prioritize what's important while still getting um, the actual job done. And then you also have, for me, um, as you hinted at earlier, um, examining my topics of DEI. And so there's also that fear in terms of I'm studying an issue of, of diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, I'm looking at it right now when um, it's not the most popular thing to discuss, especially if you're in um, conservative areas of the country. And then I'm also looking at it from the lens of critical race theory, like, Craig, what are you doing? Um, and so all that together. So you have, you know, the adjustment being back in school, trying to balance the time, the fear of, you know, what somebody really understand, what people really be interested in it, whether it be backlash to my research, but 
at the end of the day, it was a passionate area for me. I was like, this is an area where we can see true systemic change if we allow it. This is an area where we can uncover um, layers to really understand the experience of this population and how we as practitioners can leave a lasting impact. And so I had to navigate through all this. Like I said, she, my wife, she was a major support. My mentors were amazing support. My dissertation chair, uh, Dr. Dora McCoy, pushing me through, giving me encouragement, giving me tips on how to really think more critically. I think having that support network there was crucial um, as I was going through the ups and downs, as you indicated, during my doctoral program. Mm -hmm. And how did you, so you, like you said, you kind of came in with, this is the area I want to explore. Mm -hmm. What did the process look like of refining that question? <laughs> you know, it, it, it was a journey um, because I think I had this major topic and I'm trying to remember, like, I think overall, initially I was going to study, um, like, a comparative experience of African-American African -American and Hispanic males and all these different institutions. And my, my chair was like, listen, Craig, the best degree is a done degree. And he was like, let's cut this one all the way down. And I was like, but it's my baby, you know, but really having to really, really figure out, Craig, you have your whole life to do all this stuff. Let's find one area of interest. And so um, he really helped me kind of tailor it down um, to, I think, an area that I could really attain um, and focus in on. And I think that was definitely necessary. And because I came in with a general idea, but I had to weed a lot of that stuff down, it gave me a chance throughout my four years of coursework um, as I met with different faculty as well to kind of test the waters, kind of date them to see, you know, which individual, um, as I'm tossing out my ideas um, during our classroom projects, which one got it, which one I think could connect to, whether it be um, phenomenology and my, and my desire to focus on that or my desire for critical race theory um, or my desire to focus on black males. And so it helped me early on um, and each class, I found little nuggets to take away that I could, you know, incorporate into my project or into well, my dissertation. So whether it was um, uh, an article that we read, whether it was a way to analyze something, whether it's um, a particular uh, theory, um, it really helped me. So I would say by the end of the four years of my coursework, I had a, a general idea. And so by the time I jumped to the comps and everything like that, I had a, a, a general aspect of where I wanted to go. And then of course my committee helped me a little further with that. But I would say those four years, it was almost like um, a pruning process. Um, I work in ag right now. So as always, I have many agricultural uh, examples, but it was like, you know, a pruning process. And so finding ways to make sure that I tailored things down to where it was a good meaty, but healthy um, uh, project and research area to focus in on for my dissertation. And I love to hear you say that because I think the students who, it's not easy, period. Uh, yeah. But the ones who make it a little bit easier on themselves mm -hmm. use every project, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, and every course, to your point, mm -hmm. as a chance mm -hmm. to sort of refine and, and make a little bit of progress. So mm -hmm. um, I, I love that. And your pruning language. That's <laughs> awesome. I love it. Um, so when you got to the point that you're like, okay, now's the time, you know, uh, I also did my dissertation while working and it went from, this is, I'm never going to finish the coursework to what do you mean? I'm almost finished with the course. Right. So you got to shift gears there kind mm, of, yes. um, you know, it's coming, but it, it caught me off guard at least. But when you got to that point, 
how did you go about um, identifying and building rapport and relationships with your participants? Yeah. Um, and so I think for me, uh, with that process, just in general, um, even how I was able to recruit um, individuals for um, my study, um, I used um, purposeful um, sampling. And so I created um, all these guidelines to which um, if individuals self-identified um, you know, as African-American and they self-identified as male, um, they could engage um, in the and within my actual uh, research study, I mean, itself, and there were one-time interviews, 45 minutes or so, um, to where they were able to answer some questions that I had. Um, and literally, it almost became like, almost like a, 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 a counseling or a life session, I found, as these males started talking, it was almost like, for them, it was very, um, just, um, almost like, a religious experience where they got to get it out finally um and so they were just you know spilling their guts honestly about their experiences that oftentimes they don't talk about um within the 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 black male community about our struggles um that we had and so i found that to be very uh, surprising but also very enlightening um as i did my experience and i also use uh snowball um as well too and so once we had our session students were like you know what this was great i gotta tell somebody else and i was like well wonderful let me know who you know and so i my process of actually um finding individuals for my study i would say it was actually pretty quick just because as we started where it got out they would say hey i know somebody's talking about this and so they were you know pass my name along to somebody within their um fraternity or someone in their hall. And so my process to actually recruit individuals for my study probably took about two or three weeks. It wasn't that long, thankfully, because once again, as we had those experiences, they just spilled their guts and they felt as if it was like an element of relief for them and getting stuff off their chest. I think they had kept bottled up um, for a while. And so I think that was very helpful. It was also interesting as well because I was doing my study during COVID. And so my initial goal was to mm. interview second year students about their second year experience or possibly interview juniors about their second year experience. But as I was working my committee, they were like, well, right now we're in the middle of COVID. So most students are taking classes at home. There are no student organizations going on right now. You know, there are no sports activities going on. This is during the height um, of everything. And so I had to um, shift um, my, my, uh, my study to where I had to interview seniors about their second year experience. And so I had to interview seniors about their experience during their second year of college um, as well too. So I had to make sure that that was also indicated within the, the criteria for my um, purposeful sampling. But I would say that was very helpful. But like I said, overall the process to recruit um, and to engage um, individuals in my study relatively easy and like I said they just once I started talking they were like and this and that and and this happened and that and I was like well slow down yes wow wow <laughs> you, you know get it off your chest this is wonderful um and so I'm again very very thankful for that and then of course I was able to um send them all information about the study afterwards they were super engaged I sent them copies to make sure everything was verified everything that I said was accurate they were like yes captured everything like yes a little more yes this yeah. um and so I think I'm very, very grateful um that I was able to capture their experiences um hopefully in a very powerful way to where their message is out there for others to see like hey look um we can find ways to really target this this demographic and make sure they have the information the resources to succeed but learn about our lived experiences as we navigated through the sophomore slump and our second year experience well and it's 
you have to take some credit because if they didn't have a good experience with you, they're not sending their friends your way. And that so part, yes. That, that relationship <laughs> part, clearly you not only <clears throat> touched on something that they needed to talk about, but you as a mm -hmm. person provided a space where they got something out of it because again, we don't send our friends to do things that we don't think are going to be a good experience for them. Right. So, that's beautiful. Right, right. Are, are there other things about your data collection that you want to highlight or, you know, just sure. share about what I mean, your I think process for, was? Yeah, I think for me, the biggest thing um, as a quali um, a quantitative, excuse me, no, I'm sorry, I'm a qualitative uh, researcher with um, phenomenology, I think the biggest thing for me was bracketing. So finding ways to pull myself <laughs> out of that process is like, Craig, your goal is to be, um, you know, as, as neutral as possible. And so I think for me, my chair was always making sure um, that I was focusing on what I heard, um, understanding what they said versus my experience when I was a sophomore. And so I think for me, that was the most challenging aspect of my data collection and data analysis, because I was hearing all these great things, but I was like, I want to make sure as well too, that as I'm going to the data, but also as I'm analyzing the actual data during my, uh, my data analysis, that I'm truly interpreting what is being said. And so I think that was the most challenging, but also the most exciting aspect of it. Cause as I was going through, I was like, wow, this is something that a lot of individuals are experiencing, but not just me, but I'm pulling myself out to make sure that I am, you know, I'm not within this. Um, so making sure um, that for me, that was very important. But like I said, during my data collection process, just hearing their stories, powerful, heartbreaking, wrenching, um, but, but essential, I think for the conversation, um, essential um, as we find ways to really impact this, this targeted, demographic essential as we look at our best practices and are they really working, you know? And so I think for me, that data collection, um, while it didn't take too long, I think it impacted me. I think for my whole life in terms of hearing their stories and what they experienced, what they encountered, their hopes and dreams, how they hope that we as practitioners can really help them and those coming behind them. I was like, yes. Um, and so I look forward to hopefully doing more research in the future uh, to once again, create more change in this area. Wonderful. So what, what were some of your findings? What are the yeah. highlights of your study? Yeah. So I think, so going through this, really, there were six themes um, that emerged and I'll go through them quick. So that way I could talk about this forever and ever, but I won't. Um, <laughs> um, but the six themes were quickly were one, um, my, my, uh, the students were experiencing academic confusion. So um, during their second year of college, a lot of issues about finding their area of study or their major. So bouncing around from department to department to department to department to department to department, to department um, and the anguish and the isolation that came along with that. Um, struggling to ask for help within that process. How do I figure out you know, which area do I go to? What do I study? Where do I go? Um, and a lot of them as well struggling with um, how do I retain information? So a lot of my students were struggling in the classroom, but didn't want to tell anybody. Mm -hmm. So there's a struggle as well. So academic confusion was one. Um, the second, mental health. Many of my students, because they're going through a lot of um, anguish, a lot of stress um, with finding a major, finding an area of study. A lot of them were experiencing anxiety and depression um, and loneliness. Um, I had one individual that, that, that was suicidal, another one that turned to drugs. I mean, all these things where they were very open. They're like, it was a rough time where I had all these resources my first year, then they all kind of went away. 
And I was kind of by myself trying to figure out how do I get to my major and my junior year. And so a lot of them experienced mental health, some having to seek a counselor. And that was, you know, very difficult being a black male in the community where counseling is not something that's easily um, praised or recognized. And so all these things. And so mental health was the issue that arose. Um, campus hostility and peer engagement was their third theme, uh, particularly from the lens of critical race theory, where amongst all this, I'm trying to find my major and I'm trying to adjust to class. And so it was really stressful as well too. The last thing I need is when I walk outside my classroom, I've experienced racialized incidences, whether it be in the classroom, whether it be in a student organization, whether it be just walking from my dorm to the cafeteria. And so all these things to where racialized incidences, um, unfair monetization by police, um, stereotypes, um, students being um, called monkeys, all these different things where they were like, I was just trying to get a degree and all of this occurred. And so they had that. Um, but the fourth theme, faculty relationships, a lot of them found that faculty members were their saving grace and these professors were their, their idols and their models if they mustered up the strength to talk to them. And so a lot of them were very scared to approach the professors. They thought that they didn't want to hear their stories. Um, they felt as if it would be rude or disrespectful to talk about what's happening in my personal life that can affect my academic life in the classroom. And so that that reached and pulled into the fifth theme um, of maturation, where a lot of them said that their second year college was a year to which they matured and they grew up because all of a sudden they had to face all these issues. They had to find ways to talk to the professors. They had to find ways to overcome the, the racism that they experienced all throughout the campus. They had to overcome and find resources, ask for help when they had mental health issues. So they had to grow up basically. They were saying how to mature um, in that. And then the last theme, um, greater um, representation where a lot of them were like, Craig, the thing that pulled me through my sophomore year was if I found someone on campus as an administrator that looked like me. Mm -hmm. So they said, if I found um, someone within the Office of Student Life, if I found someone in the Office of Multicultural Student Affairs, if I found someone um, within the Office of uh, Sorority and Fraternity Life, I had one student that said, um, for me, it was the black janitor that worked in a student union at nighttime. He was the only person of color and a black male that I saw on campus. He was my 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 resource during my second year that I could vent to every night when I was working there in a student union. So everyone just, they were like, if we could find someone that looks like us, um, someone that identified it, that was their saving grace. So although there was confusion and mental health and a lot of hostility and racialized issues, the second year was also an opportunity for them to grow if they could connect with an advisor or professor that really knew um, cultural competence, um, as well as they could find someone of color that they could connect with um, that really helped them make sense of what they were going through and help them piece everything together to hopeful, hopefully a puzzle um, of success in the end. Wonderful. Um, the story about connecting with the janitor, I mean, that yeah. is... Yeah. Um, I don't know. There's something that really speaks to me about that. About yes. Yeah. Who, who's in the spaces where you are? You know, who do you mm -hmm. have access to? Yeah. So, well, so your work sort of drove you to this area of interest. Mm -hmm. I'm sure informed and guided you through the work of the dissertation. What what impact would you like to see this work having? What are the the sort of elements that we can put into practice in higher education to yeah. to keep keep using your study and not let it just sit on the shelf. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my my hopeful goal is that this study number one it just sheds light 
um, on the experiences of Black males during their second year and helping them to understand how they navigate these barriers, why so many of them end up dropping out um, during their second year of college and hopefully finding ways for us to create initiatives or programs and opportunities that will promote um, engagement um, and retention and student success, um, both inside and outside of the classroom. And so all these various um, implications that I think we can pull um, from the study. I, and I listed a couple of them in my study, like one, um, focusing in on number one, doing a proper assessment of the campus culture, because um, a lot of students were saying within the study um, that their schools are doing a lot of what we call the Fs within DEI. So food, fun, festivals, famous people. And they're like, oh, that's great. That's not getting to the true systemic issues that we're experiencing um, on campus. And so oftentimes they were experiencing issues where their DEI leaders were like, well, we're having some, you know, some some food or culture heritage month, come out here, it's be great. And they're like, that's, this is nice. I'm still experiencing these trauma-based these trauma -based issues in the student organization meeting, or I'm still being called this in the classroom, or this happened in my residence hall. How do I process this? And so really conducting a proper assessment of the campus culture to see where we are. Um, another one, um, creating student-faculty mentoring programs. A lot of the students here were like, if I could find a way to connect with the professor um, in an easier fashion, because they viewed these faculty members as like, the keepers of all knowledge, but there was that fear of how do I get to them? How do I approach this higher being? Um, and so there was a lot of fear um, between um, my African-American male students finding ways to connect with their faculty. Um, I also talked about in terms of um, future implications, focusing on mental health and wellness, and so finding ways for us to develop um, initiatives, but I linked it to initiatives that we could collaborate with offices of multicultural student life and um, MPHC because oftentimes these black male students, they saw um, their Greek affiliation or these offices of you know, DEI as their hub and as their mecca, as their safe space on campus. So we can connect mental health programs with these offices. They're more prone to say, okay, Normally, I would never go see a counselor, but it was being hosted over in the Office of Multicultural Student Life, and they, they got some snacks. Maybe I'll go check it out, you know? And so several of them kind of hinted at that as well, too. So I found that um, in, in the research. Um, also, once again, I think for us, uh, just focusing in on providing a greater training for students in general about cultural competence, especially when it came to that campus hostility and that peer engagement, because they're like many of my peers had no clue how to um, communicate with the black male. And so they would toss out um, uh, microaggressions, like it, like it was just candy or, you know, stereotypes. And so how to find ways to impact and really empower all of our students and not just serving as a, uh, a resource to just serve our students of color. How do we make our campus climate a better place for everyone um, to really thrive? Um, I talked about really focusing in, hopefully if the school has money, uh, focusing in on the recruitment and retention of more African-American male um, faculty, staff, practitioners, like these black males are like, if I saw anyone that looked like me, I can find my support. And so for them, they were in my interviews begging for more individuals that looked like them on campus. And then lastly, just schools in general, investing in more sophomore-based programs and second-year programs. We're finding in the research over the past, I would say 25 years or so, more schools are creating second-year initiatives, second-year offices, second-year committees or policy um, councils or advisory boards, stuff like that, but putting a major emphasis um, on the second-year experience, just as we do for the first-year experience, could be major for a lot of 
institutions and for the students to which we're serving. So hopefully, if we're able to incorporate those aspects, we'll see some, um, my prayer, some, some great um, outcomes and strides as we continue to ensure that every student makes it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like you finish this project and you've got the vision. And so in a way you create more work for yourself, particularly <laughs> right? Um, Isn't that how that works? <laughs> exactly. Um, what's next for you in terms of whether it's scholarship, whether it's sharing and distributing what you've already uncovered and, and sort of informing the field yeah. or, or all of mm-hmm. higher education, what's next for you? So um, I'm actually working with some colleagues right now on a second year initiative. Um, look at that. Um, something that, you know, we're collaborating within various colleges here, the College of Business, our College of Engineering and myself, some second year programs that we hope to launch um, next year. So that's really exciting. So I'm um, looking forward to kind of dropping elements of my research and my study um, in that, um, looking right now with my advisor to hopefully get my research published um, in some journals. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, the thing that I want to do that's most exciting, I would love to further my research and to do um, a comparative study um, and some analysis about the experiences of Black males compared to in, in terms of those at HBCU or historically Black colleges um, and um, institution versus a PWI. And so looking at how their experiences, how they may be similar or how they're different. So just a way for us to compare that. And so that will probably be my next uh, deep dive um, into my research. We're really looking at, okay, I've done this one area of study to examine the experience of Black males at at white institutions, but I'm now curious to see how it may compare to HBCUs um, and more. And so I look forward to branching out more, once again, identifying more opportunities, um, diving into the research, really understanding that sophomore slump and the second year experience and how we can be, once again, greater advocates for our students as they navigate to and through uh, their second year of college. Awesome. I'm, I I love the enthusiasm in your voice because sometimes <laughs> you know you reach the end and it's like give me a minute here. But <laughs> well, you know I, I will say so. It it is very easy to get caught up in that. But um, I sung his praises at the beginning. But my chair, Dr. Dorian McCoy, I would say um, has been the individual to kick me forward and say, now listen. It could sit on this shelf right here, or we could keep going. And so he, I would say he has been the one to where I'm working with him right now about getting some stuff published because he was like, there's so much more that could be done with this. And I'm like, yes. And so I think it kind of goes back to as well, having those mentors, um, that support network that can say, Craig, there's so much more that can be done with this. And I'm like, yes, I walked across that stage already, but there's so much more that we can do. And so I'm grateful for him uh, and his willingness to keep to keep working with me even once I finish and say let's keep going with this what what can we do next you know where can you present how can you highlight this research where else can you go and I think that has been for me um a, a, a true asset and so I'm very very grateful because if not otherwise friend I might be that person to say oh I'm tired listen <laughs> let, let me sit on down take some coffee go on vacation which I did do but still Good. um just make sure uh like no let's do a little more let's keep going there's there's more work to be done Good, good, good. Yeah, and and I appreciate you talking about different ways of distributing. Mm-hmm. Yes, please publish articles and present at conferences mm-hmm. and come on this podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, there are mm-hmm. lots of different ways to absolutely um, get the message to different audiences. Mm-hmm. So I love that. 
yeah, he's worked with me, even stuff like now, um, there are several institutions um, within, within this region as well too, that um, I've been able to go and um, present my my research to as well too. So the other faculty and research and staff at other schools across um, the Knoxville area region because of this. And so all this, because once again, he's pushed me forward and said, Greg, there's greater in you than just this dissertation. And so having someone that can see that in you and then pull it out of you, I think is so instrumental. That's great. That's great. Well, the last question I have is what else should I have asked or what else would you like <laughs> to talk about today? I mean, I think for me, I think the last thing to really say is just to encourage everyone that you can do it. I mean, it is that doctoral experience. It, it's, it's never easy, um, but I would say you can do it. It's a journey, but trust yourself in the process. Find that support network or build it yourself. Like I have a colleague um, here at the, at the University of Tennessee um, we're um, in the same cohort together. And when COVID hit, um, it disrupted the chance for a lot of us to do writing camps. So we always heard about how our colleagues before us would take these writing retreats and they would sit down, you know, for a weekend and write. Well, during COVID, we couldn't do anything like that. And so my colleague, um, he created virtual writing camps, um, like shout him out, Steve Sion here um, at the University of Tennessee. And Steve created these virtual writing camps to where we would get on Zoom on Saturday mornings and we would write from about 8.30, 9 a.m. to about 3 p.m. And so we'd write for like 45 minutes and then take a 15, 20 minute break, another 30, 45 minutes or so. And so it started off as just a couple of us, he would email people, but it grew and grew and grew until we would have these writing camps like twice a month. People would be up there from all over the world. And so it'd be amazing that we'd be writing at 9 a.m. and it'd be a different time zone for someone that's also in our Zoom with us writing in Africa or somebody writing um, in Europe. And so you'd also develop these relationships with people and see them every two weeks as well too. And so um, I'm grateful for Steve Sion and what he's done, but stuff like that to where he said, I can't, I don't see a support. I will build something myself. And so you have to do what you have to do, but you can do it. Um, I was encouraging my sister-in-law. Um, she's starting her doctoral uh, journey uh, this past fall was her first semester. I was like, you can do it. You got to just trust yourself. Um, even in those times where you're like, oh my gosh, I got one more paper. <laughs> if, if I get one more, you know, uh, paperback and it's full of red ink for my, my chair, I'm like, it's worth it. It is stretching you. You can do it. Find your support network. Trust yourself. The process um, is necessary. I think if you do all that, you can make it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and I I tell students the red ink, red is the color of love. You yeah, know, it is. People you don't care; what? they're not going to give you that feedback. So. I'm gonna take that. that. That's a word right there. That is truth because sometimes red is very attacking. But you know, you're right. Red's the color of love. It's all about how you look at it. So that that's sometimes it feels like very tough love. Yeah. I'll give you that. <laughs> so, but well, I love great. that. Yes. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this is been a joy to hear about your scholarship but also about your strategies and yeah. um just the fact that there are obstacles and that just becomes part of the journey that you take so mm -hmm. I, I do have one final question for sure. you what is something that is bringing joy to your life right now can be related to work can be personal yeah. whatever speaks to you honestly i think the thing that brings me the the greatest amount of joy every December and every May, seeing my students walk across that stage. Um, working within diversity, equity, and inclusion, it is difficult. Yeah. Um, it, it is hard work. Anybody that works in that will tell you it's not an easy job. It's not a popular job. 
uh, a lot of work, um, oftentimes ranging on where you live, part of the country, um, budgetary issues, um, it can be very uh, political and more. And so it's not always the easiest one. And so I think for me to think that it's most inspiring um, is every December and every May seeing those students walk across that stage and say, you know what, it was all worth it. Mm -hmm. Every meeting, um, every, every contentious battle, um, every budget fight, um, you know, every session, those counseling appointments, I had to work with students over and over, those late night phone calls and text messages, you know, it's early morning, it, it is all worth it when you see that student that came nervous, that came by themselves, um, sometimes they're first generation, um, don't see anybody that looks like them on campus in their classroom, and you see them build their strength all throughout those four years, and you see them walk across that stage and you tell yourself, Oh, it was worth it. I always get choked up every commencement because I'm like, it is worth it. And so um, we just had a commencement again for our students, you know, of course in December. And I was like, to see several of my students graduate, um, I was like, yes, it was worth it. So I think for me, that is my shining light that ensures that I keep going every single year where we're doing this DEI battle. Every single year, you tell yourself at the end of the day, the research that you do, the efforts that you make, you are impacting the lives of those um, that need it the most. And so I think for me, it makes everything worth it. That's beautiful. I love that. It, um, Yeah, I think if commencement isn't a highlight for you, I... I just don't know what doesn't put you in my <laughs> right. red, right? Right, yes. Um, yeah. I love that. I love that. All right. Well, I want to thank you once again. Um, much gratitude to our guest today, Dr. Craig Pickett Jr. Are you used to being called doctor by now? No, I mean, no, <laughs> there, there, there's still a struggle. You know, yeah. um, it's funny. Somebody, I was telling a joke, somebody was, I was walking down the hallway to the restroom and somebody yelled, Dr. P, Dr. Pickett, Dr. P. And I was just walking there like, Dr. P. And finally, I'm like, who are they yelling at? And I was like, oh, that's me. Oh, oh, that's me. Oh, yeah. Hey, you know, I'm I'm not used to it yet. So everybody, I call everybody friend. Everybody just calls me friend. I, and so everybody's just, I'm like, y'all just call me friend. And so I'm I'm literally still not used to it uh, uh, yet. So um, hopefully I'll get used to it one day. Maybe I won't. We'll see. But yeah. <laughs> well, you earned it, whether you get used Thank to you. it or not, though, for <laughs> sure. Um, but I really enjoyed our conversation today. And I know time is a limited resource. And so the <laughs> fact that you're willing to take some time, it means a lot. So thank you thank so you. much again. Yes. Thank you so much. Today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA. And as always, we thank them for their support. As we close, I'd like to leave you with a quote. The quote today from James Baldwin. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Thank you to thanks to each of you for listening. My name is Michelle Botcher, and it has been a pleasure to host this episode. Have a beautiful day. <laughs>